0: Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. The Comprehensive Stroke Center, or CSC, is the highest designation among the different levels of hospitals providing stroke care. CSCs use multidisciplinary stroke teams to provide the most advanced stroke care, including therapies like endovascular clot retrieval. CSCs are not available in every community, which begs the question of whether and when bypassing closer non-CSC hospitals in order to get stroke patients to CSCs is indicated. Some communities have time-based decisions about this. For example, LA County, the most populous county in the United States, has EMS protocols in place that specify that patients with suspected large vessel occlusion stroke be transported to a CSC if that expected transport time is under 30 minutes. But traffic in Los Angeles is a variable that could very much affect who has access to that CSC at any given time and who does not. Today we have Dr. Daniel Dworkis here to talk about his team's recent article in AEM entitled, Rubber Meeting the Road, Access to Comprehensive Stroke Care in the Face of Traffic. Dr. Tworkis is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at LA County, USC. He is also the founder of the Emergency Mind, a think tank dedicated to the study of how the mind applies skill under pressure in all sorts of fields. You can check that out at emergencymind.com. Don't forget to read the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Dr. Tworkis, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Oh, it's a total pleasure. Please, please call me Dan.
0: Dan, thanks so much. So we all know that stroke care is time sensitive, and in your paper you focus on the impact that traffic patterns have on a population's access to comprehensive stroke centers or CSCs. So for those who might not know, can you just review for us the various stroke center designations that there are and just give us examples of when it might be appropriate in certain settings for EMS to bypass a lower level stroke center and opt to try to go directly to a CSC. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So. So one of the cornerstones of sort of the modern system of care for people with strokes is is the concept of regionalization of resources. The idea that we don't have enough resources to go around for every single hospital. So we try to concentrate both our resources and our expertise in certain areas. And what that ultimately results in is sort of three classes of hospitals, four depending on how you count. Um, There's sort of a stroke-ready hospital, which is essentially any hospital that has some training in stroke. There's a primary stroke center, which has more resources, and then at the top of the end of the spectrum is a comprehensive stroke center. Um, And the comprehensive stroke centers have on-call neurologists, on-call neurosurgeons, the ability to perform really advanced therapies, including notably endovascular clot retrieval, um, and and really are also serving as centers of, of research and community knowledge around stroke. So there's a little bit of debate around who exactly needs comprehensive stroke care, Um, and there's always this tension, right? Because as we know about stroke, like a lot of diseases we treat in, in the emergency world, everything is very time sensitive. So there's this tension between getting to a place that can treat you quickly and quickly enough, and then sometimes getting to a place that has all the tools available that you might need. So the people that seem to benefit the most from comprehensive stroke care are folks that have really large vessel occlusion strokes that need some of the advanced therapies like endovascular clot retrieval. There's also some evidence that people in general with strokes do better at comprehensive stroke centers, which is sort of thought to be because of the higher volume of experience, the dedicated neuro ICU teams, and sort of all the experimentation and iteration that goes on around that. But it's really an open field to try to figure out who needs to be moved where, and who is best served by what protocol in terms of where they go.
0: So anybody who feels like they're having a stroke would love to be immediately transported to a comprehensive stroke center, I would imagine. But unfortunately, that is not the world we live in. So your paper looks specifically at LA County, which is, uh, I didn't know until I read the paper, but the most populous county in the United States and has a reputation of having pretty bad traffic in normal times. I don't know what it's like right now with COVID. Maybe it's less. Like right now we have no traffic here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's better. It's better.
0: (laughs) So what prompted you to design this study in the first place? Had this, it it seems, I mean, it, it seems a little obvious, but had this not been looked at before, like, is there a backstory to why you, why you did this study?
1: There, there is definitely a backstory and it actually goes all the way back to medical school. Um, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll say one thing in the middle, which is that it, you said everybody who, somebody who might be having a stroke really wants to be transported to a comprehensive stroke center. And in some sense that's true because they have the, the newest technologies and and everything else that you might need. But again, there's this tension, right? Because I think if I was having a stroke, I'd want to be transported to something which is maybe a stroke center comprehensive stroke center, maybe a primary stroke center. It probably depends a little bit on the on the trade-off between the symptoms I'm having and the time difference between actually getting the therapy at those places. Oh, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And I so, want to be there instantly. I would like exactly. a, i would like a magic wand to just
1: but it's a, put me there right now. <laughs> really complicated calculus, right? And, and it also depends on is the, like how many scanners are up and running at each of those places. Like how many other cases is the endovascular tree like suite already sort of occupied? And so this is skipping ahead a little bit because I, I think that this study is one piece in. Um, sort of pointing us towards what a, a really different style of stroke care could look like, which has data coming in from a bunch of different sources to help us make a more appropriate decision about where to send people and how. Um, and also, I guess you should say also right at the beginning, like, you know, I am, I am an ER doctor. I am not a neurologist. I am not a you know, neuro ICU doctor. And, and I'm talking about this predominantly from the ER and the geospatial side, but, but a real solution would have to have input from a bunch of different stakeholders, like from community experts through hospitalists, through neurosurgeons, through everybody. All right. So that disclaimer out of the way. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes, yes. Yes. And my magic exactly. wand,
0: obviously, which doesn't exist, is, <laughs> it's not, it's not there. So sure. now we have to talk about traffic.
1: <laughs> yeah. So so the arc to this, the arc to this paper for me really started in medical school, and I did my medical school at Boston University and Boston Medical Center. And um, over the course of my, I don't know if this was probably my fourth year of being a medical student, I kept seeing this one patient. I saw him in the emergency department rotation. I saw him on medicine. Um, I saw him in an ICU month at some point, I think. Uh, and he's a gentleman that had COPD and he was homeless, and he kept showing up over and over again. I don't know. Maybe the third or fourth time I, I saw him, I sat down and I said, "Hey, man, like, like, what's going on here? Like, how can we really like do a better job at this?" Um, and I was a med student, so I had time to sit and <laughs> like have really long conversations. And and he said, "You guys keep discharging me with nebulizers, but I'm homeless, and the homeless shelters don't have access to electrical outlets in the middle of the day, so I can't actually use my nebulizer." <laughs> and I and I was like, "Wait, what?" We didn't know that. We didn't know that homeless shelters didn't have electrical outlets available in the middle of the day. So we actually went and we studied that and um, published it in Annals of Internal Medicine about like access to midday electrical outlets in homeless shelters in Boston. And the, the thing that stuck with me was this idea of like how all of the great knowledge about the disease can be completely blocked by the lack of a very simple physical or structural barrier to health and how not knowing that structural barrier to health really uh, makes it such that you're sort of prescribing something that's impossible for that person to actually execute, and not even knowing it. Um, the, the most humbling part of that was calling the oxygen delivery companies to see if they would deliver to homeless shelters, because all of them said yes, but you know they don't have electrical outlets, right? <laughs> so this knowledge was already out there, and somehow it just wasn't getting to the right place. and mm. so. Over time, I started getting really interested in structural barriers to health—things that seems totally uh, mundane, but actually make an enormous difference in the ability of a, um, a patient and a team to work together to get a good health outcome. And and you know, so I'd been doing a little bit of work around stroke in Los Angeles and other cities, and and sort of had ended up talking to a group of folks that are a mix of EMS and neurologists who are curious about this question about who has access to comprehensive stroke care. And uh, when I read the actual EMS policy, which in Los Angeles County says that if you are within 30 minutes of a comprehensive stroke center, you'll be transported there. Uh, Sorry, at least this is what it said at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're within 30 minutes of a comprehensive stroke center, you'll be transported there, even if that means bypassing another closer primary stroke center. Um, to me that that you know instantly had these echoes of this dude trying to plug in a nebulizer to a non-existent electrical outlet. I was like, wait this is a like this is a real structural barrier here and anybody that's lived in LA knows that the distance you can travel in half an hour depending on the time of day and direction you're going mm-hmm. might be completely across town you know like I, I can I can get from the west side to LA County which is on the east side of downtown in under 30 minutes if I go at the right time. And other times it takes me an hour and a half. And it's it just it's just wildly variable. And, and so you have this situation where you have a set threshold, a set number, 30 minutes, and then variable resistance to that over time and space. And to me, that created this very unique situation that actually hadn't been looked at before, which is, what is the interface of putting a a set threshold on transport with this structurally like spatial and temporal variable resistance to it? Um, So we went out and we studied it.
0: Excellent. So as you just said, the EMS protocol that you were talking about in your study um, was that if a patient was having signs of a large vessel occlusion, Mm -hmm. they would go directly to a CSC if, if they could make it there in under 30 minutes. And so then your team hypothesized that with this fixed threshold and then traffic that would be variable, um, that there would be some places that would always fall within that 30-minute threshold, and then some that would never make it, and then some that might have intermittent access, depending on what was going on at the time. So so let's talk about how you actually went about studying this. Like, Tell us about your, your design and your methods.
1: Yeah, so... Uh, you know, I think if you look at a lot of the literature in the field, they tend to use this this sort of two-state model, like you either have access or you don't have access, and they compare the spatial inequality of, of access to comprehensive stroke centers, which is which is very um, which is really important and, and really influential in a lot of the work that we did. Um, and we said, well, maybe there's this third group that only sometimes has has access. And so, to study that, we really had to look at sort of more on the ground data of what is what is traffic really look like. Um, so, we took rather we looked at LA County at the level of the census block group, which is the most granular level of spatial data that actually has demographic data attached to it in the U.S. Census. Um, and so, if you're if you're sort of new to this field, it, you know it goes like sort of county and then census track and then census block group and then census block as sort of that hierarchical russian doll stacked kind of idea so we looked at the census block group level so it's under a census track Um, so for each census block group we identified the closest comprehensive stroke center just as the crow flies distance uh, and then interfaced with google maps actually to try to figure out how long it would take you to drive from the center of that census block group to that comprehensive stroke center um and then for each one of those dyads, each one of those pairs, we uh, calculated the driving time um, 12 times. So so threefold sampling each and basically the four big periods of traffic during the day. So, you know, morning rush hour, evening rush hour, in between rush hours, and then sort of the overnight slow period. And, and we're able to, to, in that sense, to sample sort of the the overall scope of how long it would take for most people in LA County to move to these different comprehensive stroke centers. Um,
0: so, so transport time might be a little different for an ambulance with lights and mm -hmm. sirens. So how did you account for that?
1: Yeah, that's actually really interesting. And that was one of the, the sort of most interesting things I, I stumbled across, uh, from a just sheer curiosity perspective, doing this paper, which is that it seems like most of the time we don't actually know how much benefit there is in lights and sirens. <laughs> like, there's not like a universally agreed upon answer to this. Like, the dif- you know in, in in California, we sort of we, you know we call it Code Three versus Code Two transport. Like, like what's the difference really between turning on lights and sirens? And there's sort of a generally understood um, sense that it helps. Uh, but it's not really sure how much it helps, and most of the studies, in terms of how much it helps, um, some of them have been done in really densely packed areas like uh, like LA, but not usually. Usually, they're sort of more in the in the smaller size cities slash suburban areas, uh, and so there's not really a clear answer. And, and we we surveyed the literature as best we could on that, and most of the time it seems like it uh, helps less than 10 minutes Mm -hmm. per ride, like significantly less than 10 minutes per ride, which can still be the difference between life and death for a lot of people. Um, Sure. And it could certainly
0: get you under that 30 minute threshold. But I think anybody who's been in an ambulance in heavy traffic wanting to get somewhere quickly knows that (laughs) it's not that fast. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, so we we said, well, to be super conservative, we'll say we'll give everybody an extra ten minutes. So we'll say a thirty-minute threshold really is corresponding to a forty-minute threshold, and we'll uh, allow ambulances to travel ten minutes faster like that. Um, and our our results held up under that um, under that assumption as well.
0: Great. So you did this for over sixty four hundred census block groups, and. You made some pretty interesting observations about access to comprehensive stroke centers and the demographics of areas that had no or limited access. And in the paper you write, I'll quote you, uh, we identified significant demographic differences between areas with different types of CSC access, suggesting that areas with limited CSC access may also have significant socioeconomic
1: disadvantage.
0: So can you go into this in a little more detail?
1: yeah absolutely and i think it's useful to take sort of one step back and just describe the map of what we found and and hopefully you know folks listening to this can can take a look at this map because it's always hard to describe a map in words but mm-hmm. but basically if you're looking at you know a map of la county um, it has the city of la in it uh, which is what everybody thinks of of L.A. And then it has a bunch of mountain ranges. And then north of that, it has three other really large cities, Santa Clarita, Lancaster, and Palmdale. Uh, and then off to the west, it sort of like includes into some of the Santa Monica mountain ranges. So um, if you're in L.A., you know, Santa Clarita, Lancaster and Palmdale seem like somewhat smaller cities, but actually all three of those are on the list of the the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's 500 largest cities in the United States. So these are really big places with really big populations. Uh, it's just if you put them next to LA, they look small. So, you know, our guests going into this and also what the EMS protocols would suggest is that we knew that those folks in Lancaster, Palmdale, and to some extent Santa Clarita, probably would not have access within 30 minutes to a CSC. Um, and we suspected that this intermediate sort of group that sometimes had access would, would probably be like a watershed, right? Like they'd be the 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 borderline between have and not have. Mm-hmm. Um, what we found, though, was actually was actually pretty different than that. So we did find in fact that there is this watershed area that sort of bridges the gap between the always have and the never have. But we also found in the middle of LA a really large group of census track census block groups that only sometimes have access to comprehensive stroke centers. And this is like, you know, over a million people in in South Central and um sort of uh, Eastern parts of LA city uh, that only sometimes have access to comprehensive stroke centers. And that was really, really unexpected. You wouldn't wouldn't guess that in the middle of a giant city, you can't get to a comprehensive stroke center within 30 minutes. The demographic stuff that you were highlighting really applies mostly to that center um, of the city intermediate access group, that sometimes access group. And there, we found that they had higher um, probability of having, of living below the poverty line and higher probability also of having less than a high school diploma. Um, So what we're finding is that really there aren't any, uh, and you know, you'd sort of knew that if you look at LA in general, like this was a a relatively, like South Central LA is relatively socioeconomically disadvantaged compared to other parts of LA County. um, And there aren't any comprehensive stroke centers right in that area. Um, so what we're finding is that, uh, you know, and that there's some, of course, evidence that, that chronic, um, chronic diseases, hypertension, diabetes, the things that predispose you to stroke and also stroke in general do have some relation to socioeconomic status and access to care, which, which is probably an access to care and access to, um, you, you know, the pillars of a healthy lifestyle sort of story. Uh, and so it's not surprising necessarily that, that that area of LA is at higher risk for stroke. And then also now we're saying they have a potentially lower access to comprehensive stroke care, which feels a bit like a one-two punch for that area.
0: That's a good way of saying it. Are yeah. there any limitations of your study that you'd like to highlight?
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So, you know, I told the story at the beginning about the gentleman who didn't have access to electrical outlets. and. I think that the, for me, the best type of science is science that works in reality, and so I think we've taken a step forward in this paper, which is that we've moved from a sort of theoretical two, two like two group model into a more sophisticated three group model that actually uh, incorporates ideas about traffic, but it's really only a step in the right direction because to really answer the question of who has access, you would need to sit down and and not do this over Google Maps, but instead to do this with the actual ambulances and to track how long it takes them to actually make their calls in different directions and to figure out how the decision-making is is really being made in terms of who has access at what point of the day. And I guess what I mean by that is if somebody gets picked up at a particular point in time and space, where are they most likely to go? And that's not just a factor of traffic. It's also a factor of sort of how busy the different hospitals are. So we get a step there but we're only partway there. There's also a couple of other ones. We don't consider air ambulances. We don't consider hospitals outside of LA County. So there's a couple of structural issues like that. But my actual, you know, sort of my thoughts about what would, what would we need? What would come next? What, if I had a magic wand, like we were talking about at the beginning, what would I build? I would build a study. I would build a system that had data on traffic that had a data on the relative, um, Caseload in the different hospitals that had data on the endovascular suites, that had data on the CT scanners being up or down, that had data on, uh, you know, how many neurocritical care patients were already at that hospital, um, and then was able to use those factors together to make some really intelligent decision making about who to send where, when. And I think that's rife. That's an area that's really rife for some decision making support from artificial intelligence.
0: That's fascinating. And in the future, um, how would you, and you're, I'm just going to let you riff here, I, I realize that you're, you know, I'm sure you would say we need more data or better data, but <laughs> if you were in charge of everything, <laughs> like, how do you think that traffic analyses should weigh into discussions for planning for access for to CSCs?
1: Yeah. I, so I think there's two ways to answer that question. And And, you know, if I had one hat on as a policymaker, Um, I would incorporate um, traffic analysis in my decision-making about where to support uh, the next CSC. So if you look at the map of LA County, for instance, you might initially assume that the best place to put one, to put another one, would be up in the sort of northern area, the more geographically isolated area. And that's one, that's one logic, which is that you'd move a whole group of people from never having access to sometimes having access. With the traffic analysis, though, you might make an alternate decision, which is to put one actually in South Central LA, the goal of which being to move a large group of people from sometimes having access to always having access. It's not immediately obvious which of those decisions is better. Mm -hmm. And it's also not immediately obvious how you would even decide which decision is better. But without incorporating the resistance to transport in the form of traffic, you can't even start that discussion. So I think at a policy level, it has to be a part of it because we have to really be conscious about how we're making these trade-offs in terms of, you know, the supply-demand mismatch of scarce geospatial resources. In um, an alternate hat, if I'm, you know, if I'm running um, an EMS. Uh, company or if I'm running ambulance transport, I would definitely want to use data on traffic to help me understand the best ways to transport my patients to the best optimal care. Because it's really a decision about what's the best way to transport that patient from that spot at that moment in time, given all of the state of the rest of the universe in terms of all of the hospitals around you. And that's a really non-trivial problem. I think we have a wonderful, wonderful EMS system in LA County that that does incredible work, transports a lot of sick patients. Um, And I think like every big city, like every area, like this is a really complex problem that we only have some of the answers to.
0: Well, thank you so much for your work. Um, I think it's actually quite important and very practical, which I love, and uh, I can't wait to see what you do next.
1: Right on, thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. The full text of this article is available on our blog at brownemblog.com, open access for a limited time. Check out all of our podcasts on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.